Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Uh, In 1969, two musical protégés, two 16-year-old Kentucky teenagers met at a music contest in tiny Edsel, Kentucky. The population today of Edsel is about 200 people or so. One of these young men was a mandolin player named Ricky Skaggs. The other was a guitar player named Keith Whitley. And here they are just months after meeting. Whitley was born this weekend in Ashland, Kentucky, 1954. These two became fast friends, musical partners. A year later, they were playing together just over the Big Sandy River in West Virginia when they were discovered by none other than the bluegrass legend Ralph Stanley. He was late for a show, and as he entered backstage, Stanley heard what he thought was a jukebox playing his, he and his brother when they were much younger. Skaggs and Whitley's imitation of the younger Stanley brothers was so spot on and so precise that Ralph hired them on the spot for his band. Both men would move to Nashville. Both men would become superstars in country music. Today, Ricky Skaggs, nearing 70 years of age, is still performing, producing, and recording. I tried to add it all up. This is close. 46 albums, 450 million records sold, 15 Grammy Awards. 15 CMA ACM awards, every award the International Bluegrass Association has to give, Country Music Hall of Fame, Gospel Music Hall of Fame, National Medal of the Arts. But I think he would tell you, as painful as it was, that one of his greatest honors was to eulogize his friend, Keith Whitley, who arguably would have been as successful as Skaggs But he died at only 34 years of age, 34 years ago. Keith Whitley was racing cars and drinking homemade Kentucky bourbon by the time he was 14. The two went together, the danger and the drinking. He was a passenger in a car and the lone survivor in a wreck that killed everyone else. The car went into a mountain curve at 120 miles per hour. He drove an old beater muscle car off a cliff, drunk one night, breaking through the frozen river below and sinking with that car to the bottom of the river and walked away with only a broken collarbone. When Whitley arrived in Nashville in the early 1980s, he was known for two things, a velvety, heartbreaking voice and that he was an alcoholic. It was not a secret. It was well known. His professional recording career encompassed only about a decade and only two albums, 22 songs. Twelve of them became chart-topping hits and seven more after his death. His most well-known songs, Don't Close Your Eyes, 
When you say nothing at all, and the one we just sang, I'm no stranger to the rain. His artistry, his delivery, his eager embrace of tradition while also being an innovator, and his addiction. On the morning of May 9th, 1989, Keith Whitley had coffee with his brother-in-law in his Goodlettsville, Tennessee home. His wife, Lori Morgan, who was a singing powerhouse in her own right, was on tour and away from home. And the two men planned a day of golf and a late lunch. Keith said, I'll be ready in an hour. And when his brother-in-law returned, he found Whitley dressed and ready, but face down on his bed. He was rushed to the hospital, but pronounced dead on arrival. Benzos, cocaine in his bloodstream, and a blood alcohol level of almost 0.50. No one seemed to be able to help the man. Ricky Skaggs couldn't. He said as much during the eulogy he gave and in the years that have followed. Whitley's mother couldn't help him. She spoke to him by phone on the morning of his death. Lori Morgan, who loved him, couldn't help him. In her own autobiography, she wrote about tying one end of her bathrobe around her leg and the other to Keith's ankle so that she would know if he got up during the night to leave to go find more to drink. Keith Whitley, Whitley's own love for his wife couldn't help him. He handed her a card with these words inside, standing in the Nashville airport the last time that they saw each other. I talk about a country song. Would you like to know what I wish for you? If I could have any wish I wanted, this is my wish. That in your life, which is so precious to me, may worries, troubles, and problems never linger. May they only make you that much stronger and able and wise. May you rise each day with sunlight in your heart, success in your path, answers to your prayers, and that smile that I always love to see in your eyes. I love you, Keith. Mm. Vince Gill, another close friend, couldn't help him. Gill was inspired to write, Go rest high on that mountain after Whitley's death. Ralph Emery, Dave Frizzell, George Jones were all listed as Whitley's pallbearers, close friends who couldn't help him. And just as a light aside here, when George Jones in the late 1980s tells you that you have a problem, you've got a problem. His pastor couldn't help him. The Reverend Pat Kibbe closed Whitley's memorial service by quoting, No Stranger to the Rain. Speaking with compassion for both Whitley and those who had tried to help him over his young life, he said, None of us are strangers to the rain. There are times when we are tossed and shoved about by things that we cannot control. A person can have it all. Means, love, a supportive family, skills, good looks, stellar career, a world of opportunity, and still not have the ability to be or to live well. All the while, the people who love that person have no ability or control to help them, it seems. Everyone is tossed and shoved about by things defiantly beyond any kind of management. Control, after all, is an illusion. There's very little we actually control in this life, and especially when it comes to other people, and especially sometimes when it comes to ourselves. 
There's a saying in AA and in treatment circles that a person has to hit rock bottom before they will ever change. That's a fair assessment. A person has to exhaust themselves, hurt themselves, impale themselves, sometimes over and over again. They have to suffer loss. It's just a human trait. Humans sometimes We are just the combination of pure tenacity in pursuit of insanity. The one who has it all might have to lose it all to get well. They might have to lose their means, all those who love them, that supportive family, their skills, their good looks, their healthy body, that stellar career, and that world of opportunity. It may all have to burn. And while that sounds like bad news, and there will be tons of regret and required healing and grace and therapy and prayer on the other side, on the other side they just might live. They might thrive. So be it alcohol or drugs or codependency or financial or sexual addiction or painkillers, I know scores and scores and scores of people who found rock bottom and lived to tell the tale. And they live still. And they are truly alive. But I have to be honest, some never get there. They don't live long enough. They're digging, they're trying to find the floor, they are suffering, they are hurting themselves and those around them, and you would think as an outside observer that they have nothing left to give, nothing left to lose, no more pain to endure, no more agony to dish out while having everything to live for. But they're just too strong, or at least their dependencies are too strong. It's been said that addiction starts as anxiety management and ends as consumption. Consumption is the word that doctors used to describe for tuberculosis. They called it consumption because the person seemed to be being eaten away on the inside, losing all their mass losing all of their strength. And addiction is like that. It consumes everything. Desire, will, creativity, relationships, energy, identity, and sometimes it even consumes the person. There's a passage in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. And this is a book, it's, it's an allegory about salvation. These poor suffering souls that Lewis describes as ghosts being given an opportunity to become real, to be made fit for the kingdom of God, to be transformed from ethereal, wasting away mirages into strong, youthful, glorious beings, to forsake the hell they have created for themselves and to enter divine reality, heaven itself. And one such ghost could do nothing but protest and complain and find fault In everything. Do you know that person? Here she was on the doorsteps of heaven, but she had brought hell with her. The main character in the book says to his guide, I don't think she's that wicked. She's just a garrulous old woman who has got into the habit of grumbling. Maybe a little kindness would put her all right. And his guide says, Maybe. If so, she will be cured. But the whole question is whether 
She is a grumbler, or now only a grumble. If there is a real woman, even the least trace of one still there inside that grumbling, it can be brought to life again. If there's one wee spark under all those ashes, we'll blow it till the whole pile is red and burning. But if there's nothing but ashes, we'll not go on blowing them in our own eyes forever. There comes a day when there is no person left doing the grumbling but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. And I don't know if there's a more apt description of what addictions do. They eat away everything until only the addiction, only the grumble remains. But there is some good news. For those who reach rock bottom, there is a rock at the bottom. The genius of Bill Wilson who crafted the 12 steps and the recovery movement that followed is the simplicity and urgency of those steps, especially the first three. The admission of being powerless. The belief that only a higher power can restore one's sanity. And the bold decision to surrender all, to hand everything over to the care of the God of our understanding. Jesus, for many of us, is the God of our understanding. When we think of God, it's not necessarily the old man in a long white beard sitting on a throne in heaven. When we think of God, we think of that Jewish carpenter as a reflection of God in this world. That is the God of our understanding. And it's Jesus who invites those who would trust him to throw everything onto him. To build on Him. To trust Him as that higher power. At your rock bottom, find Him to be the bedrock upon which you can place your trust. Matthew seven twenty four and following that we read today is the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest repository of Jesus' teaching. The best summary of the ethic of Jesus. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Those three chapters hold the Beatitudes, Jesus' reinterpretation of religious rules, focusing on our inner motivations, not simply our outer behaviors. This sermon has the Lord's Prayer, the practices of simplicity, the golden rule, the supremacy of sacrificial love. It's all right there in those three chapters. And I'm with Clarence Jordan here. If this was the only teaching of Jesus we had... It would be enough. For this is both ideal and practice. It should define us and direct us. It should be read devotionally and attempted courageously. It should be contemplated and lived. Jesus' assurance is that if we will live it, if we'll just try it, we will find safe footing during those times we are tossed and shoved about by things that we cannot control. There are two houses here, and Jesus never makes the construction of these houses an issue. They're probably both very well built. They're both sturdy. The point of contrast is the foundation. That's where the danger is. One is built to last, and the other will wash away with the next flash flood, a common scene for Jesus' listeners. 
I remember once being down at the Dead Sea. And by the way, you can go back to Israel with me in May. May 6th through 16th, you can sign up. But I remember being down by the Dead Sea, lowest place on the earth, in front of a chalk-colored wall. And it was explained to me that rains 100 miles away in that desert could fall and that not a single raindrop would fall where we were standing, but a wall of water could appear on the top of that ridge 20 feet high and, and just washing away everything in its path. I think that's what's in Jesus' mind here. For us, where we live, we might imagine a hurricane. Let's not imagine them too long. Both houses experience this storm, but the aftermath is radically different. For when the storm passes, one house is a great disastrous heap. The foundation upon which it was built was unable to bear the strain, but the other house survives. And if you let me stick with the hurricane theme just a minute, the house survives. Now, the windows might be knocked out, and there may be a blue tarp on the roof. And you may have to cut out three feet of sheetrock around the entire edge of the house. But the house stands because it was built rightly. To be a follower of Jesus, to trust him is not to be protected and insulated from the storms. To follow Jesus is not to be insulated from loss or addiction or from suffering in all of its variegated forms. Both houses are battered by the storms. And you will be too. Having Jesus in your heart doesn't put a geodome or a force field over your life, your family, or your circumstances, keeping all the bad stuff on the outside. If you follow Christ, you will face all the same storms and adversities and pressures as anyone else, sometimes more so, but a life built upon the solid rock will stand. It will recover. From the great divorce again, Lewis says, for all that can be shaken in this life, will be shaken, and only the unshakable will remain. If you're someone listening today and you're in the storm, you're going to have to get to solid ground. And directly to the subject, if you struggle with addiction and the storm you are in is a storm of your own making, you may have to let the storm do its work. Let it wash away everything that is false and fraudulent. Let it strip you of all your excuses and your blaming and your projection and take it to be what our friend Lyle Sanquist calls one of those damn gifts. Oh, it's a curse to be sure, but it is also the only way out. What you have been trusting in is collapsing. What you have been, how you have been coping is failing. How you have been living isn't working. Maybe this storm will be the one that will finally loosen your grip and loosen the grip of whatever has its hold on you that you might be able to rebuild your life. And to you who might be in the storm of someone else's making, your work is the same, you know. You are powerless too. Only trust in a higher power can restore your sanity. You too will have to make a bold decision to surrender everything to the care of the God of your understanding. And that includes the one you love, whom you are unable to reach, unable to help, rescue, or save, though I know you have tried. I know. 
This is Russ and Martha Clark, snowbirds. You'll recognize their beautiful faces. Russ is, uh, he's not was, he is a Marine captain, retired United Methodist pastor and district superintendent, and I hope he and Martha will hear this later. Russ is very honest about his past struggles. He came home from Vietnam trying to figure out what to do with his life, and he said, I felt like I needed to go in the opposite direction, so he went to seminary. And uh, later in life, his PTSD from Vietnam showed itself. He struggled with addictions. His life imploded. But he has gracefully and thankfully in decades past, moved to solid ground and rebuilt a beautiful life. He has been a confidant of mine and a mentor to me. He knows I have a loved one who struggles with addiction. and He asked me a question once that really got to it. I'd like to ask it of you. When you cry... Whose name is on your tears? I know what it's like to grieve for and over someone who promises to change, who swears he is doing better, who lies and hides the truth of his condition, who can be a best friend and then blame you for everything. I know what it's like to love someone who has the world in his hands and can't seem to do anything but dribble it on the floor. I know what it's like to lay at night wondering not if he'll live the year out, but if he'll live the weekend out. I've spent more money than I have, more energy than I can muster, made more referrals than I can remember, and preached more sermons than I can recall all in an effort to build the best rescue machine possible, hoping and praying for a turnaround. And I've seen that machine, to quote James Taylor, sweet dreams and flying machines and pieces on the ground. To love someone in the spirals of addiction ain't easy. I don't know the rules. I can't tell you how far to go. I can't tell you where to draw boundaries when enough is enough, how you transition from protecting them to protecting yourself from them. I don't know how you reach the unreachable, change the unchangeable, heal all the scars on your heart, get back those sleepless nights, or how you can continue to cry over someone when you have said a hundred times that I'm not going to give them one more minute or one more emotion. I don't know. But I know this. If they ever recover, it will be because they reach the bottom. But whether they get there or not, you have to find your bottom. And keep your feet planted on that rock that is your foundation, lest you too get washed away in the storm. This is a prayer from my favorite little prayer book, It's called Changes. And today, I want to pray it for all of us. 
Today, I pray that I may understand there are some things I cannot change. I cannot change the weather. I cannot change the tick of the clock. I cannot change the past. I cannot change another person. I cannot change what is right and wrong. But I can stop worrying over that which I cannot change and enjoy living more. I can place those things into God's hands. I can save my energy. I can let go. I can change my attitude. I can change my priorities. I can change my habits. I can move into wholeness, becoming the beautiful person God created me to be. And in Christ's name, that's what I pray for. And God's people say, Amen.